0: Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Onion Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torridan, and I'm joined by my buddy, Chris, all the way from uh, Cleveland in Ohio from the Two Tongues Podcast.
1: Hello, hello, Daniel. Like
0: to be back again.
1: It's hard for me not to sing Oh Danny Boy when we when we start these podcasts.
0: <laughs> uh, super. So how are you?
1: I'm doing well. In fact, uh, my sister is visiting from out of town and uh, I I had a late night last night because of that and was feeling not so great. And then my wife and um, my sister and the kids went to the pool, the, the little community pool. And that's where I was when I realized I was late for our podcast. So I feel very refreshed you ready to go <laughs>
0: and I was in the middle of
1: another podcast
0: <laughs> I totally forgot we were doing this one so apologies to anyone that thought we were going live at 5 it's now at 6 almost so there we go yep. um so uh, just a quick update this week let me just tell you this um remember the first week that we met on here i told you that i someone told me on twitter i was overthinking things yes and then the second week the second time we met Someone told me uh, I was shallow. Hmm. (laughs) This week I've been told I'm crazy.
1: Oh, the trifecta. Hmm.
0: So I I think that was uh, crazy was all they could come up with in uh, argument to uh, something I posted, which I think, I don't know if you think this, but I think when someone accuses you of being crazy, I think that is because you're getting too close to the truth.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I think, um, calling somebody crazy is like calling somebody racist these days. It's just, a, it's just a way of shutting down the conversation, right?
0: That's it. You're crazy. Yeah. You're crazy. Um, yeah. And, uh, basically the, I, I think you're, uh, you're knocking on wisdom's door. I actually found a quote in, um, this may not mean an awful lot to you. Um, but it will mean a lot to any of my, uh, XJW uh listeners let me just see if I can find it um you know when it comes to truth uh there's a fallacy isn't there where people um say you know like well hitler thought that or something along those lines yeah right as if uh, just because he did, that means that uh, every single thing that came out of his mouth was false. Um, this was a quotation from one of the Watchtower magazines, which is what the, uh, the witnesses read. Um, it was from 1879. And it was their founder, a guy called Charles Taze Russell. In an article entitled "What is Truth?" he said "A truth presented by Satan himself is just as true as a truth stated by God
1: <laughs> I smell that one yeah yeah that's the one of it I like that yeah the the um what is it it's called the uh, ad hominem I think that's what that's what the fallacy is attacking the man, yeah. Right. That's it. That's what Satan
0: thinks. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. If uh, if indeed Satan is real, even if uh, it's Satan saying it, if it is true, uh, I think the point being made is that truth stands on its own merit. Hmm. It doesn't matter who says it. So there you go. So I've been accused of overthinking, being shallow, and being crazy. So anybody's guess what next week is
1: going to hold? Well, you know, you know, when we were talking about how. Um how symptoms of insanity are are awful close to symptoms of mystical enlightenment, you know? Uh, yes. So maybe maybe being called crazy is sort of a compliment.
0: <laughs> a candid compliment. I'll take that. Um, I've been doing a bit of reading this week. Uh, I've been reading a book by a guy called uh, Paul Wallace. I don't know if you've ever come across Paul Wallace. I don't think so. He's a writer and a speaker, and uh, he's written a well, he's writ- written a number of books, but he's written a trilogy of books called the Eden Books. Um, mm. The first one's entitled Escaping from Eden. And it follows on the thought that we were discussing the other week about uh, the Elohim in Genesis 1 not being singular but being plural and that it could actually refer to gods, not God. So that's quite, a, uh, quite an interesting yeah. one. Um, anything to say on that before I,
1: well, I just wanted to tell you, Daniel, I never, I never heard the El Elyon phrase until you brought it up. Oh, really? Never encountered that particular phrase. And, uh, then I saw somebody in a tweet today, use it. I I literally never encountered that before.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Isn't it? It's, Mm. um, it looks as though El Elyon was first used by, um, Melchizedek the king priest of Salem before it became Jerusalem later oh. um, obviously not an Israelite at the time and uh, it was Abraham that met this king priest uh, Melchizedek and Melchizedek refers to uh El Elyon his god and it literally means god most high and then um it looks as though in the redacted version it looks as though the redaction uh, redactors in the fourth or fifth century BCE have then uh, got Abraham referring to El Elion as Yahweh. Hmm. So it looks as though they do that quite a bit. They they identify the most high God and then some little redactor somewhere in Persia hmm. is sitting in Yahweh.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's funny, I don't know the um I don't know the ancient languages, so I could be wrong, but I know El means God and yep. And El is the, first, is the beginning of Elion, and you say it means the most high. And, of course, I'm familiar with God being called the most high. Um, but what occurs to me is that the high gods were, for a big chunk of history and a big part of the world, they were sky gods. They were gods of the heavens, and they were gods of the sky. Like, like Jupiter, Deus Potter is the sky father. And yes. so so El Elyon means God most high. There's a connection between the word God and high, which is probably a connection to the sky and origins of Yahweh or, or El being a sky god. That's pretty interesting.
0: I think there's there probably is a connection there. Um, an interesting one as a Jehovah's Witness, uh, a scripture that we used all the time, was Psalm 83, verse 18, um, which is the one that says that people may know that you – um, are you alone? Are the Most High over all the earth? Um, and it actually puts the Yahweh in there. You Yahweh are alone, the Most High over all the earth. Oh, interesting. Um, most High. It always struck me as a bit strange that it said Most High over all the earth. Mm. It doesn't say over the heavens and the earth. It just says mm. over the earth, uh, which would kind of fit the demigod kind of role yeah that's kind of well have been yeah
1: yeah yeah that's interesting
0: <laughs> so uh, yeah i've been reading all about that escaping from eden i've put a uh, link on my books page on uh, onion unlimited and he also made a very interesting connection in one of his uh, videos that i was watching this is paul wallace again uh, about the connection between india and israel and the fact that Jesus, um, during that kind of silent period between when he was a 11 year old kid at the temple and when he suddenly popped up on the scene again at 30 years old, um, he may have been off in India learning some of the, uh, mystic arts. What do you make of that?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I have heard that. I think i I think I might've mentioned it. Um, I can't remember it, the specifics, but it was uh, it was the name Isa that appears in Buddhist um, history. Yeah. And there's there's some people who think that this Isa character who traveled there from, um, you know, from the West uh, of you know China and uh, Nepal from the West. That could have been anywhere. It could have been anywhere in the Middle East, certainly um that isa character's name sounds a whole lot like jesus and if you hear this hit this histories that are spoken of about him he sounds a bit like jesus he's a uh, you know he's a spiritual leader he's somebody who's um a learner who's who's there to learn the spiritual uh truths of other people and it reminds you a lot of like um like like socrates you know who went to egypt to mm-hmm. to learn you know uh he went all over, but he wanted to learn from the wisest people all over the world. You know what their wisdom was, and I that think that makes, uh, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Sure does. Yeah,
0: there was some uh, some connection as well that uh, Wallace made uh, interesting connection. This the wise men or the Magi, as mm-hmm. they referred to in Scripture, that visited uh, Jesus. Um, as an infant, uh, it says that they were wise men from the East and that they followed his star in order mm. to find him. And uh, the question comes up, why were why were um, Eastern mystics interested in a Jewish messiah? They wouldn't be. Um, but they might be if there was some rumour that this uh, infant may have been a reincarnation of the Buddha. <laughs> which is, a, <laughs> I've never thought of that before. Um, but he makes this, he makes quite a, a good argument for that. But um, he may have been viewed uh, by those in the East as a reincarnation of the Buddha. And when word got out, because um, by this time, Jesus wasn't a baby. He was probably about two or three years old, living in a house at the time that the um, the Magi came to see him. There's the, uh, the nativity, um, Uh, scene, isn't there, where they're visiting him in a manger
1: uh, and he's a little
0: baby and, uh, you know, swaddled up. Um, That's actually completely wrong, apparently. He was somewhat older at the time.
1: (laughs) By the time the wise man reached him. Right, right. So I have two things I can say about the Magi that are interesting, Daniel. The first one is – well, the second one's a little disappointing. The first one is this (laughs) – the, the magi the, the magi is a word that the ancient Persians used for their priests, and they were Zoroastrian priests, and there's a lot of connections between Zoroastrianism and Judaism and Christianity that nobody really knows about, and we can talk about that mm-hmm. if you so, yes, so what, what you have is these people from the East, we don't know exactly where, but maybe they were coming from Baghdad, maybe they were coming from Persia, maybe they were coming you know from somewhere like like that. Uh, and they, these pretty Zoroastrian priests show up to see the baby Jesus. They're, they're a completely different culture, completely different language, completely different religion. And I always thought that was one of the coolest stories in all the Bible. And that leads me to point number two. Uh, when I was in college, I went to an American Academy of Religion seminar with my professor. Uh, shout out to Dr. Tim Davis. And we went to Chicago. We went to um, uh, this seminar and on the drive there, we got to talking, and I, I brought up the story. And he, he said to me, that was probably added to the scripture, the idea that these people were magi, ah. as a way of making it the appeal of Jesus cross-cultural. So it was probably not original. I don't know what the evidence of that is, but I got to tell you, it was the biggest bummer to hear that from, <laughs> from somebody who I respected, you know? Um <sighs> So there's some things that will probably come up during this conversation uh, when we get into Hermeticism. But while we're talking about Zoroastrianism, Daniel, Hmm. what do you know about Zoroastrianism? Do you have any experience with that yet?
0: Um, At this point, zero. Um, So I uh, look forward to learning a bit about this. Um, I have this week been looking at um, a philosophy known as new thought or higher thought which is where hermeticism comes in. okay. Um, And it actually mentioned in that that uh, there's a connection with Zoroastrianism and uh, Egyptology and Greece and so forth. But in terms of what I know about Zoroastrianism, no, zero. So uh, please, please enlighten.
1: Well, I'll just give you a handful of things that I learned when I was a teenager that still to this day blow my mind. Um, Okay, Zoroastrianism used to be called... Europeans used to call it Mazdaism, and that's where the the car manufacturer Mazda gets its name from ah. the high yeah from the high god of their religion whose name was Ahura Mazda, which means wise lord. And the the prophet of that religion was a man named Zoroaster or um, Zarathustra. That that's uh, you might be familiar from the Nietzsche book, "Thus Spoke Zarathustra." Same guy, Zoroaster. Okay. Greek pronunciation, and he was a prophet who predates Moses historically, and he showed up um, in um, the Middle East saying um, there was only one God, and his name is Ahura Mazda. So you can think of him as maybe the earliest monotheist, which is really interesting, but a a little bit of a twist is that in Zoroastrianism, they don't believe that um, Ahura Mazda is the only supernatural creature. They believe the world is populated by supernatural creatures. And the big one that you need to be concerned about, his name is Arhiman. He's the devil. So what you have is God, Ahura Mazda, and Arhiman, the devil. And the way that they present it is like you have a good God and you have an evil God. And they're always at war with each other. They're, they're They're always struggling within human beings for dominance. So what you get there is the good God versus bad God thing that Christianity picked up. Um, the ideas of the of the of lucifer and the devil that don't appear in judaism um you know even even presuming that the serpent in the garden was the devil is is reading into that it's that's not what the story says so so there, the the fact that christianity adopted this spiritual warfare um happening for our souls and in the world good versus evil that comes from zoroastrianism um
0: Okay, that ma- that makes a lot of sense because um, try as I might, it's very difficult for me to find a God and Satan story with any um, great amount of uh, information in the Old Testament. It's right. almost it's almost absent. I mean the the only place that really refers to a Satan as a a kind of individual, seems to be the Job story, which interestingly, uh, Job, it says, was um, the greatest. I've got the scripture here. Actually, Job 1, 1 to 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. He was uh, upright, a man of integrity who feared God and shunned what was bad. And it says he became the greatest of all the people of the East. Mm. So the the one book in the Old Testament that tends to talk about Satan is actually um, based around an Eastern guy.
1: (laughs) That's interesting. Mm. It it gets more interesting, Daniel, because the idea of hell, well, the idea of heaven and hell uh, as a place for souls to exist after death, that doesn't exist in Judaism. Right. Period. Period. They believed in a land of the dead called Sheol, and it was much like Hades. It was a, a land where the souls existed until until the end times, right? So, uh, And then, the, of course, the whole end times element is al- is also read into that because the Greeks didn't have that exactly. You know, the, the ancient Hebrews didn't have that exactly. So that idea comes from Zoroastrianism, that w- if you are naughty, when you die, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. If mm. you're good, you'll go to heaven and, and and live in paradise for eternity. That idea... Not biblical, not Jewish, comes from Zoroastrianism.
0: And this Um, is this seems to be a uh, a bit of a pattern with some of the uh, Christian ideas, doesn't it? Um, Even so far as things like the immortality of the soul and that kind of thing, Mm. they tend to be more of a uh, find their find their uh, origins more in mystical teachings than in the ancient Jewish texts.
1: Right, and, but there's a there's a deep connection to Babylon because the Jews were captive there. Right, Absolutely. so yeah. so yeah. if you go if you go back to Babylon, you're going to find things like Ziggurat temples. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen photos of them, the Ziggurat of Ur it still exists. It's it's in ruins, but it still exists. A lot of people believe that was the Tower of Babel. Um, so you have a connection between Babylonian temples, the way they were built, and yep. the the story of the Tower of Babel. But even more than that, there there are these Clay tablets, these uh, clay tablets that were written in cuneiform, that talk about the—they're called the Antediluvian Kings List. So, oh, okay, yeah, I've been looking you at that this last, last week. Okay, Absolutely. so they had—they have them in Egypt and they had them in Samaria and Babylon, where the mm. they would just write down this king ruled from you know X date to X date, and there's twelve of them.
0: And it covers it's something like 30,000 years.
1: Covers many, many thousands of years. So you, there's some parallels to how, how people in the Bible were, were um, supposed to have lived for a very long time. There's, mm. there's some parallels, but they're even more exaggerated. Yeah. But here's, here's the thing about it. The 12 kings in the, in the Sumerian and Babylonian kings list, I don't know enough to point to specifics, but I can tell you that scientists believe that those names of the kings – Correspond to the twelve patriarchs of Judaism, beginning with Adam and ending with Noah, and um, the Noah story, the flood story, also a Babylonian story. It comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yep. So you have all of that that we consider to be we hold near and dear to be Judeo Christian, and they're and they're not. They're Zoroastrianism and pre Zoroastrianism um, ideas.
0: And this makes, this makes a lot of sense to me from the point of view that the Old Testament was actually written a lot later than it's said to have been. And in particular, the Torah, which if you, if you go by what the Torah says, uh, the chronology places it somewhere around about 15, 1500 BC, but modern scholars now think that the Torah was most likely pieced together um, in its current form, at least uh, around about five hundred to four hundred um, BC, which would be Persian times. Would after they'd been in Babylon, so they would have picked up immediately after, right? Immediately yeah. after, yeah. Um, and this is also the period where the redactors swapped out uh, the Canaanite El and El Elyon for Yahweh, or Rather conflated the two together to end up with uh, one single God called Yahweh that is El or the Most High. Whereas prior to that, El and, um, or El Elion and Yahweh would have been two separate gods. Mm. Yahweh would have been the um, the son of El, according to Canaanite. So it's interesting, isn't it? They, they sort of start off with this Canaanite point of view. They worship. They're a polytheistic religion to start with, the Israelites, and then they make their way via, um, obviously, the Northern Kingdom of Israel is taken into Assyrian exile, and then you've got the Babylonians that come along and polish off the Judean section, and then assimilates the whole of the Assyrian Empire.
1: Mm.
0: You'd have ended up with um, Jews and Israelites being. Um, exiled not not just in babylon itself but throughout the whole of babylonia so they would have been um they would have been exposed to an awful lot of uh, eastern teachings wouldn't absolutely
1: they? absolutely uh,
0: maybe even further afield as well you know sort, sort of edging towards uh, india
1: so um Tell me me if you don't want to go down this road, and I'm perfectly fine with it, but there's something something that comes up that's connected to this, that's loosely connected to this. So how much do you know, if anything, about the pharaoh Akhenaten and the Hyksos?
0: Um, Very little, again. The Hyksos is what we think may have been the Israelites.
1: That's that's what I want to bring up. That's what exactly.
0: But not a three million odd people nation um, in slavery that ever made it through 40 years in a wilderness, I believe. It was a very, very small group of people, wasn't
1: it? It was, and there's no evidence that they were slaves. The, the evidence is that they were wealthy and that the, that the Egyptians, the proper Egyptians, the ethnological Egyptians, the, the ones from Egypt with Egyptian blood were none too happy about them and, and ran them off. Because they were afraid right. that the Hyksos were going to be, were going to take over. Um, but I tell you that only because the word Hyksos has a certain similarity to the word Hebrew, and they yep. were Semitic people. And the Egyptians fought with lots of Semitic people, uh, you know, during the the you know the the ancient Egyptian period. And these uh, these Hyksos people, um, it, they they have some connections to this pharaoh named Akhenaten. Now. Mm-hmm. Akhenaten is a very interesting character. He gets tied up with the ancient alien conversation for for a couple of reasons, most of which because if you ever see statues or images of Akhenaten, um, they're very strange and they have they have really elongated heads and, um, oh, yes. and weird shaped bodies. Like the pharaohs, the pharaohs would be represented as. Ripped, right? Because they're they're god men, but but Akhenaten had a belly and a you know he had love handles and you know that's how they made him look. So I tell you that because I think it was Amenhotep the third was Akhenaten's father. Um, everybody knows Akhenaten, even though they don't realize it, because Akhenaten is related to King Tut. We all know King Tut, right? That yeah. that was his that was his son, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Nefertiti being his wife, so everybody knows him. But what they don't know is that. Akhenaten's mother was from sub-Saharan Africa. She was a black African, not a, not a, not a Middle Eastern Egyptian. She was a black African and she had a different religion, right? She had a tribal animistic religion that worshiped, uh, um, like the great spirit. You would imagine like, like native Americans have a, have a religion where Mm -hmm. they have a high God. This is what she believed. And so people think that when Akhenaten showed up on the scene and took over from his father, he immediately shut down all the temples in Egypt. All of them. And he said, there is no Ra. There is no Osiris. There is no ISIS. There's only one God. His name is Aten. He's the sun God. And ah, yes. shut down all the temples, pissed the priests off. And back then they were very powerful people. The priests are like the oligarchs of Russia, you know, back then. They're like wealthy and powerful and dangerous. And and he just said, no, there's only one God. So earlier I brought up that, that Zoroaster may have been the first prophet to say there is one God, but Akhenaten is in the the running. And if you go back and read prayers to Aten that are still there, you know, in Amarna, they sound like Christian prayers. You cannot tell the difference between Akhenaten's prayers to Aten and a Jewish or Christian prayer.
0: Wow. And there's going to be, I'm guessing, the redactors later that that put together the Torah with the the story of the slavery that wasn't a slavery and the Exodus that wasn't really an Exodus and the wilderness and all all those kind of stories would be drawing on some of the sort of myths and fables they'd heard of. And I'm guessing Moses, who is their chief guy, he is going to get some connection here because it's Moses that, kind of tries to introduce this idea of a singular God at the, uh, at the burning bush. Um,
1: Yeah. Let me, let me just, let me just say something about Moses really quickly. hmm. Um, Moses. (laughs) Moses is a name that sounds a whole lot like Ramses. Ra is the God. Ra, Mose. And even in in Arabic now, Moses is called Musa. So so Moses may very well have been an Egyptian, Ramses. Mm -hmm. And there's great evidence to suggest that the the name Moses is really an Egyptian name. Um, And there really was an exodus, by the way. If we go back to the Akhenaten story, Akhenaten had to leave the capital of Egypt because he pissed off all the priests. Remember, he had to build Uh (laughs) <laughs> he had to build. He had to build a new capital called Amarna from scratch, hundreds of miles north up the Nile. He built a whole new city and moved his whole family there. So there really was an exodus, and there is connection that says Moses may have been Akhenaten, or Akhenaten oh. may have been Moses, or they may have influenced one another. If they were, if Moses was a historical character,
0: yeah, I get. I get this impre- impression that all these stories are kind of influencing each other and you end up with this mishmash of a story. And then some uh, fifth or fourth century BC um, scribe has sat down (laughs) with the, with the task of trying to put this all together into a a legible kind of narrative Um, with the purpose of obviously the, um, the Persians of the time were big on repatriation. They wanted, they wanted the Jews to, you know, and the Israelites to go back to their homeland. But they're not just going to say, you know, go back to your homeland and uh, sort of make it up as you go along. They want to see, first of all, an origin story in print. And they also want a law, a set of laws, so that when they release the uh, exiles back to their homeland, it doesn't just sort of degenerate into um, into anarchy. Smart. So you've got a scribe there sitting there pulling up, pulling off all these Eastern stories and the Egyptian stories from down in the south and putting it all, all together into a, a nice little, uh, nice little Torah for the, uh, the Jews to, to live by. And what amazes me as well is they went to all that, ex- they went to all that, de- all that um, extent to end up with a single. God, Yahweh, to try and get, get away from these Canaanite pantheons and the Egyptian gods and all the rest of it. Let's, let's just stick with Yahweh. And then Christianity comes on the scene and introduces the Trinity, uh, Trinity again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sort of messes it all up again. It?
1: That's pretty. That, that's a good point, Daniel. That's a good yeah, point. That's
0: it. So that's good. I like that. Nice little trip down the uh, history lane there. Here's an interesting uh, little uh, connection you might have noticed before. In uh, Hinduism, we have uh, Brahma and his wife, Saraswati. Mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed how similar that is to Abraham and uh,
1: Sarah? I'm telling you, you completely blew my mind. <laughs> completely blew my mind. So I, I can show you this, but I don't know if you can see it on the notes for that you sent me for the conversation today. Mm-hmm. That that section, I put a little note next to it. Wow, with an exclamation point. I never have never considered that. That is absolutely amazing to me. There, there's something to that. I don't know what, but there's something to that.
0: Uh, there is something to it. There's a guy I actually tweet uh, did a retweet this week because it was so good. If you go to my I Have Many Layers um, Twitter feed, you'll need to scroll down a little bit. But there's a guy called At uh, India Art History. And he's actually posted a thread of um, the similarities between Abraham and Sarah and uh, Brahma and Saraswati.
1: I'm going to follow that guy for sure.
0: Yeah. So it's uh, at India Art History. So that's good. Um, So, yeah, I've been reading a lot about um, some of these connections between the East and uh, Israel. Um, I've just ordered a new book that I haven't started yet called God and Anatomy. Um, It's a really thick book. It's like kind of a thousand pages thick, I think. Um, And it's all about uh, Yahweh and the El and the Elohim and uh, Ashtoreth, which I think we were talking about. Um, Apparently Yahweh had a wife or at least a consort called Ashtoreth, um, the fertility goddess.
1: So I don't know if you want to get me started on fertility goddesses. Um, <laughs> Go on. I have, yeah. tat- I have one I have one tattooed on my arm, Daniel. Oh, very nice. <laughs> that's a, that's the Venus of Brass and Poy on my arm. Um, okay, so I don't know if you're a Dan Brown fan, but I was um, yeah. during, during the heyday of Da Vinci Code and all that, I was a Dan hey, Brown fan but he was the first person that brought to my consciousness the idea of the divine feminine. And when it first got introduced to me, I wasn't sure about it. I thought, I thought to myself, why give God a gender? That seems strange. Calling God a man or a woman is is wrong. Something's wrong about that, but calling God a man and presuming that there is no feminine aspect to God. It's also kind of wrong. You know, it's incomplete. So imagining God as both male and female it started to slowly make more sense to me. And I never realized that we cut out the feminine part of the belief system. And, you know, there's all sorts of things we can say about that, you know, the patriarchy and all that. But, uh, but at some point we did, we, we removed um, the feminine aspect from God. And if you go back historically, the feminine aspect of God has always been the paramount one. It's always been most important because the feminine has, well, if the feminine has connections to creation, We, there's no argument there. Women have children. And so the the earth mother or, or the goddess that bore the earth was a woman. Wh- wh- the creative essence is a feminine essence. And so it's also connected to our instincts and to the unconscious, which is this mysterious thing we don't understand. But that's where our consciousness comes from the unconscious. So,
0: so you um you sent me an article actually which I devoured um about uh how the israelite uh, nation let's just take that one for a moment the israelite people their tribes originally started off as uh matriarchal not patriarchal. Mm. Um basically the women were in charge and uh they had their various different tribes and apparently if I, if i've got this right what they did is they used to loan men from their tribe to other tribes to go and do a bit of hunting or warring or whatever and while they were um, while they were on loan to uh, another tribe they would actually get a temporary wife oh. <laughs> for six months or whatever this was in that article you sent me um, so they'd be doing their their warring and their It's sort of on a subcontract basis, but they'd still have the pleasures of home. Uh, And when their time was up, so it would be a contracted time, you know, six months or a year or whatever, when they got home from war or from hunting, uh, the the, the way they knew that their time was up was that their temporary wife would turn her tent around so that the entrance was facing the wrong direction. And that was a sign, uh, your time's up. You need to go back to your original tribe now. But when they got back to their original tribe, they often found that their, their real wife was uh, with another guy from another tribe that was on loan.
1: <laughs> so it's funny. I, I, I've been encountering this idea um, uh, recently. I've been reading a lot of um, Carl Jung's pupils. I've been reading a guy named um, Edward Ettinger who wrote about Greek myths and their psychological meaning from a mm-hmm. young perspective and i've been reading a lady named louise von franz who does the same thing with fairy tales and i've been reading eric neumann who is basically young star star pupil and uh, he wrote like the greatest book on Jungian philosophy uh, ever it's called the origin and history of consciousness it's amazing and they, they talk about this it's called exogamy and that's a word i've only ever seen written but it's When, when people, if you go back far enough in history, when tribal people lived in the early days in the stone age, they were matriarchal. Like you said, the women, the women, the women were the most well-regarded, um, people in the community because they had the babies, right? They had the babies. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to argue. That's the most important role in the, in the, in the tribe, right? Having more people, um, and so what, what they would do is they would have this process that we call exogamy, where once a man was of age where he was going to take a wife, you would get kicked out of the tribe. And it wasn't like you're shunned. It was like, go find a wife in another tribe. And that was done. Well, it was a cultural thing, but you can imagine it was done to make the gene pool better. Right. Yeah. You don't want you. So you don't want to inbreed in your tribe for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's not going to be a good thing. So they figured out how to, the solution to that was to send their men away and they would go join other tribes and take wives and have kids. And that was spreading out, you know, the gene pool. So that's that's how things were when women ran the show. <laughs> that's how and things then, were.
0: Then gradually what's happened over time, it's it became patriarchal. Mm hmm. Um, so by the time you get into the Bible stories, it's all uh, the men are all in charge, aren't they? Yeah,
1: but, Neumann, um, sorry, yeah. I was gonna say that that Neumann fella has an ex. He has an explanation. He has an idea as to why things changed from matriarchy to patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he basically just says that men had to go out and hunt, and they had to they had to create communities with other men, and they had to live in a way that was neumann describes it as more conscious right and, but in contrast to more instinctual right women live in this highly instinctual world where they have to be attuned to the needs of the of their babies certainly but of the of the community and it's almost like thinking is too it takes too long they have to be instinctual they have to they have to act you know right' where, where men were were exposed to danger, they were out traveling, exposed to unknown dangers all the time. They had to form bonds with each other and learn about, well, whatever they needed to learn to be successful hunters and to not die. The women back home didn't have to do that. So men eventually created male groups that became more and more important. They're bringing back the meat. You know, they're they're bringing back new technology uh, because they're out there struggling against odds that the women aren't. And so they created a a powerful group that rose up and took over. Whether that's true, I don't know.
0: Interesting point you're making there between um, instinctive um, knowledge and kind of the the normal thinking wisdom Mm. idea. Yes. Um, It's often been thought that, you know, men think women feel. That may be a blanket statement across the board i know as we go into uh, hermetic philosophy in a little bit that there's act- one of the hermetic principles is that there is um two genders to everything so like you were saying before when we think of god you know we should really be thinking of god as masculine and feminine not one or the other that he That's has or it has both sides of it and i th- i think what's happened in um modern society, um, and hopefully this is changing a bit now, but certainly certainly, when I was growing up as a young fella, um, the male or masculine idea of thinking was always prioritised over the feminine idea of feeling, as if somehow it was better. Um, You know, I'm, I'm sort of of the... I've got a few years on you yeah, i'm i'm of the uh, i'm of the age when you know the men went to work and the women stayed at home and looked after mm. the babies and um that's a very extreme view isn't it it's taking men and put putting them into a purely masculine role mm. um and it's taking women and putting them into a purely what we traditionally think of as a feminine role when in actual fact, there's masculine and feminine qualities to both men and women. Right. I mean, I am—I'm not ashamed to say—I'm very much in touch with my feminine self. You know, I mean, I'm a bloke, bloke. You know, with the beard. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, you do.
0: Um, but uh, I've always been um, more intuitive than thinking. Um, I don't know if that notices, but. I've often found that, uh, you know, particularly in the past, most of my friends have been women. I've normally got on a lot better with women because I'm able to talk about sort of feelings, Hmm. whereas a lot of fellas don't actually discuss feelings, do they? No,
1: no, we pretend we don't have them, Daniel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm very, uh, I'm very feely. Uh, We'll come to that one in a bit because uh, I want to move on if if it's okay to this other book that I've been reading and is called the Kybalion or Kybalion. Uh, We'll discuss a bit of that today, but can I just, before we go into this, this is about hermetic teaching. Can I just give you a rundown on a dream that I had?
1: Yes, please. Yes.
0: So um, I I had a dream. Um, It was all very weird and wonderful, like most of my dreams. But when I woke up, I had this, um, I just felt compelled to write down some thoughts about space and time. So just to put it in a nutshell, um, the way that we usually think of space and time, we think about space and time as being basically the same thing, just two different aspects of the same thing. And we tend to think of the first three dimensions as being spatial, don't we? Right. so you have uh, you have a plane uh, forward and backwards you have a plane upwards and downwards and you have a plane left and right um, and then the the fourth dimension is thought of as um, time right so that, that's the current view um, and, and I'm okay with that Absolutely OK with that, but this dream I had suggested that we could look at space and time in, in another way. Let's hear. So um, if you start with let me just start with you, take a piece of paper and you draw a dot in the middle of the piece of paper, and this dot is not moving. The dot is just just there on its own. OK? We can think of that dot as one-dimensional. Um, we can think of that dot as an action, or we can think of it as a conscious thought, but it's not going anywhere. It just is, yeah. yep. it's, it's just a dot on the page. Okay. So let's call that the first dimension. Now, rather than thinking of the second dimension as, um, another spatial dimension, let's save that for a moment. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's think of the second dimension as something which has an effect on the first dimension, that being time. Or as we look at the hermetic principles in a a moment, we'll think of it as vibration specifically. Mm. So what I mean by that is you take your dot and you move your dot, okay? And we'll give it a limitation. We'll say you're only allowed to move that dot forward. So let's say forward. OK, yep. you're not allowed to move it backward, only forward. What you've done there, you've introduced a second dimension, uh, albeit a very flat one. But you could actually start doing things with that. You could go around in a circle. OK, or you could go in a figure of eight, hang on, figure of eight, like an infinity symbol. Now, notice as you do that, as you're moving your, your dot or your pencil in a figure of eight symbol, although you're only going in one direction, you're actually, you're actually alternating the direction. Same if you're drawing a circle. You're first of all going left to right, and then you suddenly find yourself going right to left. Yeah, right. Okay. So you've almost introduced, by, by introducing motion into it, you've almost introduced like a pseudo backward you're not actually moving backward any more than you can naturally move backward in time. So what I'm suggesting here is you actually can't move backward in space. You can only move forward in space, but you can alternate the movement such that it gives the impression that you're going backwards. Sure. Now, if you, if you were to do that, um, that shape again with the, with the dot, if you were to move it up and then down, and then up and then down and up and down. What you've just gone and created there by the use of time and the use of movement, you've actually created a vibration.
1: Mm, That looks very
0: much like a sine wave. Sure does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's 1D and 2D. We'll get onto that a little bit more later. So 1D is spatial. 2D is this introduction of time or movement, or we'll say the combination of time and movement is vibration for want of a different word. So then 3D, let's say that 3D is another dot, but it's on a perpendicular plane. Okay, so 3D is a dot again. Introduce 4D that allows that dot on a different plane to move, to vibrate in a, in a particular plane. You only really need the two perpendicular spatial planes um 1d and 3d you don't actually need a third spatial plane because 1d and 3d have actually got it covered all you do is you just rotate it around whatever mm. axis you want yep. to so you don't actually need three dimensions of space what you need is two dimensions of space mm. and two dimensions of time to act upon those those two mm. dimensions
1: of space Interesting.
0: I don't so, know. It just—it just sort of came to me in this uh, dream. It might be a load of rubbish, but I wrote it down. And um,
1: so, hold on, wait, wait. On, so, yeah. so, so, okay. So, you have a two D plane, and you yep. pivot that. You pivot that two dimensional plane any way you want, and it's going to create three D. It's going to create three dimensions. Am I following you? Okay, yes. I like that. That's interesting. Yeah, That's
0: it's interesting. like it's like when you buy something from Amazon. I bought something a while from a while back from amazon and it gave me the width depth and height yeah and uh, they'd actually got the listing wrong <laughs> i was looking at this item and it said it was 35 centimeters wide and 15 centimeters deep and i'm looking at this thing and it wasn't it was completely the other way around i've <laughs> <laughs> got their they've got their widths and depths mixed up here um but actually width and depth are actually the same plane
1: that's interesting. It's, I, height never...
0: it's, it's height that is a different plane. Width and depth just moves around the same plane.
1: Oh man, man. I'm, I'm I'm literally I don't know. <laughs> Notice I'm literally drawing this out while we're talking.
0: That's it, yeah. <laughs> so, so what I what I actually what I actually sort of deduced from this is we don't actually need we don't need to think of space as three dimensional. We need to think of it as two dimensional, two separate planes. Mm. And then to act upon those planes, we actually need two dimensions of space, not one. Um, so, and what you get from sorry, what you get from that is uh, if you imagine um, moving around a sphere, yeah, yep. If you've actually got a ball and you move move your finger around the circle of that sphere, you can actually um, end up moving in any direction you like without changing the direction that you're moving. Hmm. Simply by coming back on itself and then going the opposite way around and then over and then the other way around. Right. Um, So as long as you've, as long as you've got those two planes and you can introduce time, uh, space, sorry, time and movement, on the two planes, you've you've pretty much got everything covered.
1: So, I'll, can I dig into this time and motion because that's what's that's what's I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around right now. So, Sorry. I can see when I, when you were explaining to me one D and two D, yep. I, I picked up one D is static, and the yep. difference the difference between one D and two D is motion. Yes. So, so, so that seems to require time. Motion yeah. seems to require time, and I'm not exactly sure why or what that means but that's interesting
0: right what that what that means from a two-dimensional um perspective of time is is basically what we experience in our in our four-dimensional existence we can only experience um time in one direction Mm, can't go backwards we have the impression that we can go backwards in space but that can't be possible because space and time are completely in- interrelated. If you can't go backwards in time, you can't go backwards in space. So when we actually think we're moving backwards in space, actually what we're doing, we're still moving in the same direction, certainly moving in the same direction in time, aren't we?
1: Yes.
0: And it's it's just an illusion that we're moving backwards in space. That's interesting what, we, what we've done is basically loop back on ourselves yeah yeah backwards what we haven't done is stop disengage come back and then move backwards we can't do that we we're, we're kind of trapped in this constantly forward movement whether that's spatial or
1: or time so let me ask you this question I'm, I'm conflating motion and time in in a very difficult way in my mind and this is what this is what i want to ask you about I think about time yep. as a record of change. So time, yes. time is transformation. Yes. Um, that's what we mean. Because if I, you know, it's like, what's different between one moment and, and another? Well, it's a different moment, and, and everything's different. Everything, everything is constantly changing. So time seems to be a measurement of change, and I'm not sure what else it is. You know?
0: Okay. What I'll what I'll just do. Um we we're going to move on to hermeticism in a little bit yep and there are seven principles of hermeticism i'm just gonna i'm just gonna jump to the one that that fits this okay so there is let me just find this there are seven principles in hermeticism which we'll come back to in a minute we'll discuss what hermeticism is but one of them is the principle of uh, mm. vibration, okay? I'm just going to read you something from um, the Kiballian, Uh under the heading of dimensionality and planes, which is mm. interesting. Yeah. So bear in mind I'd had this dream about planes and vibration before I'd started reading the mm, Yes, And then I started reading the Cabalion. And I thought, blow me, <laughs> that's exactly what I've just had a dream about. So it says, um, at the beginning, we may as well consider the question so often asked by the neophyte who desires to be informed regarding the meaning of the word plane, which term has been very freely used and very poorly explained in many recent works upon the subject of occultism. The question is generally about as follows. Is a plane a place having dimensions, or is it merely a condition or state? We answer, no, not a place, nor ordinary dimension of space, and yet more than a state or condition. It may be considered as a state or condition, and yet the state or condition is a degree of dimension in a scale subject to measurement. Mm. Somewhat paradoxical, is it not? But let us examine the matter. A dimension, you know, is a measure in a straight line relating to measure, etc. The ordinary dimensions of space are length, breadth, and height, or perhaps length, breadth, height, thickness, or circumference. But there is another dimension of created things or measure in a straight line known to occultists and to scientists as well, although the latter have not as yet applied the term dimension to it. Bear in mind this was written in 1907. (laughs) So the idea of uh, time being a fourth dimension hadn't yet been considered, I don't think. So it says uh, the latter has not yet been applied to the term dimension. And this new dimension, which, by the way, is the much-speculated-about fourth dimension, is the standard used in determining degrees or planes. This fourth dimension may be called the dimension of vibration. Hmm. It is a fact well known to modern science as well as to the hermeticists who have embodied the truth in their third hermetic principle that everything is in motion, everything Hmm. vibrates, nothing is at rest. Hmm. From the highest manifestation to the lowest, Everything and all things vibrate. Not only do they vibrate at different rates of motion, but as in different directions and in a different manner. So we've got this idea of the different di- different directions, the sine wave, the up and down, if you will. From the highest manifestation to the lowest, everything and all things vibrate. Not only do they vibrate at different rates of motion, but as in different directions and in a different manner the degrees of the rate of direction uh, of vibrations constitute the degrees of measurement on the scale of vibrations. In other words, the degrees of the fourth dimension and these degrees form what occultists call planes, Hmm. the higher the degree or rate of vibration, the higher the plane and the higher the manifestation of life occupying that plane. So that while a plane is not a place, nor yet a state or condition, yet it possesses qualities common to both. We shall have more to say regarding the subject of the scale of vibrations in our next lessons, in which we shall consider the hermetic principle of vibration hmm. isn't that good? that is good do you need to get that
1: no no, it was actually it was my alarm for reminding me of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so can we unpack that a minute basically what we're saying is that there are dimensions of space spatial dimensions but they only really exist if you take a static point and add motion or time or vibration to it that's so interesting
1: so interesting and then it
0: exists as a plane so we call that two dimension and i'm i'm positing that there's also a third and fourth dimension that are perpendicular that might just i might just be repeating myself there
1: but yeah yeah so it's so it's it's almost like it's almost like motion creates space and i i I don't know if i'm conflating the word plane and space but it's like whatever it is i think
0: i think they work well together absolutely
1: there's a, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but there's a guy that works. His name is Robert Dijkgraf. He's a physicist that works at um, uh, Princeton, I believe. And uh, he says that he believes space might emerge from entanglement. So, you know, there's a whole question there when we start talking about quantum entanglement that we, that could get us in the weeds um, in terms of vibration and waves and all that sort of stuff, because that, Quantum physics is chalk with that, but he, be- he believes that something to do with entanglement creates what we call space, the planes that allow motion. And that doesn't happen without, without time, you know, motion requires time. And so there's this, it's difficult for me to, after this discussion, it's difficult for me to m- make a distinction between motion and time. Yes. It's sp- space for that. Yes. Matter.
0: As, and space for that matter. Um, so as, as we move into the hermetic principles, the first hermetic principle will be, uh, when we get to it, um, the principle of mentalism, which is basically that everything that exists is a product of mind, of consciousness. Now, we've discussed before that consciousness or the type of consciousness that we're aware of is one thought following another in a usually speaking forward momentum, Mm. albeit that's very conceptualized, but um, conscious thought involves change. You have a thought, you have another thought, you have another thought, you have another thought. What you've just done there, you've created space. (laughs) There's gaps, or want of a better word, uh, troughs and peaks. Yes. Between this thought and the next thought and the next thought. Mm. Even if it's only conceptually, you've gone and created space, and if you've created space, you've created time because the two are in, completely interlocked.
1: That's, amazing. So
0: That's space, amazing. space and time, and direction, and planes, and the vibration, and everything is—is is, to me, it's evidence that there is a higher, um, a higher being, a higher consciousness from which all of this is arising.
1: Well, I'll tell you what that helps me to do. It, help, it helps me to conceptualize something that I'm very interested in, but I can't really conceptualize very well. And it's the idea – well, it's about idealism that we've talked about. It's, yeah. it's the idea that everything is mind. Yes. So, so I try to imagine what does that mean? How is that possible? That, you know, does that mean that matter, space, and time is a thought? And a thought in what, you know, and a thought in God, you know, it's like it's a very, very convoluted little little exercise. But no, I
0: think I think you're on. I think you're on the right lines there. I yeah. really do think you're on the right lines there.
1: What What you just said is that simply by having a thought, what you what you have is like a cascading domino effect of change, transformation, and yep. if that transformation manifests as space and time then i understand bernardo Castrup saying everything is mind. that that makes sense in a strange way and you help me with that man i appreciate that
0: thank you well i'm i'm, I'm glad i'm glad it has because <laughs> i come up with these little ideas and they're not quite as eloquent as uh, as the way that you often put things but if you yeah. can get that and that's that's been a, a years, that is brilliant